Afghan journalist Nasreen Nawa escaped Kabul last Friday. The pandemic had postponed for a year her fellowship as a Fulbright scholar at the University of Nebraska. By chance, the 27-year-old flew out just in time. Now she's here, alone, while her parents and sister are stranded in Afghanistan, facing a grim and uncertain future. Right now, I don't see any hope. Nothing. Because I think the world left us behind. Nasreen kept having the same recurring nightmare in the days before she left. Images of her sister running away from the Taliban. Two days after Nasreen got out, her nightmare became reality. All my friends are terrified. They deleted their social media accounts. They are hiding in houses. They don't go outside of their house. And they have no plan, no hope, nothing for the future, especially women. Women, including her sister and mom. Nasreen wrote in an op-ed for The Washington Post about those final days and the unthinkable uncertainties that have rapidly swept her homeland. Her sister tried to leave too, on Sunday, the day Kabul fell, but it was too late. When she went to a bank to withdraw cash, there was none left. And the flight she was supposed to get on never got out. Another family member trying to flee was robbed and unable to reach anyone for hours. Another friend made it to the airport looking for safe passage, but couldn't get a flight out. I'm James Holman, and this is Please Go On, where we get more of the story behind some of the Washington Post's most important op-eds. Today, Nasreen Nawa. I'm so glad you're okay, and I'm so glad we could do this. Your piece was incredibly powerful. Oh, thank you. I'm sad that that was for something so sad happening. I read your piece, but for those who didn't, you managed to escape Kabul last Friday, the 13th. What was that experience like? You had this ticket in advance. Was it easy to get out? Was it ominous? The day I left, there was no chaos, but there was fear and uncertainty uh, to the utmost level you can imagine. Because two weeks before leaving, everything was changing so rapidly. Taliban were capturing provinces uh, in Afghanistan. So everyone was desperate to plan something, to find the escape plan. But no one was predicting that something that quick will happen and something so big. When I left, we were talking about some plans. We were scared. But uh, when it happened on Sunday, it was something so unbelievable. Even right now, we still couldn't believe it. We couldn't take it in. We were thinking, yeah, we will have the war. We will have casualties. We will have some so many other challenges, a corrupted government. but. At least we will not live under the Taliban regime again. And your sister and parents are still in Kabul. What are you hearing from them? They're trying to not make me worry, but I'm so worried about them. They say that 
normal life is resuming and Taliban are trying to control everything peacefully, but it's not happening completely. My sister is so disappointed because she is stuck in there with so many fears because she was so active and well known there. And Taliban are not okay with girls like my sister or me that we believe in democracy, in human rights, in women's rights. And your sister is also a journalist? Yes, she is also a journalist and an artist. One of the paragraphs in your op-ed that I have not been able to stop thinking about now for the past few days is about you telling your sister that she needed to destroy her guitar And you wrote that she said her hands were unable to do that, but you pleaded with her and you told her the Taliban's hands are capable of killing you for your art. Tell me about that conversation. And has your sister destroyed her guitar? I was thinking, what if they come to our house and if they see our identity cards, office cards, or recorder, or her guitar? All of them are something, a sign of guilt for uh, Taliban. So they will not spare my sister. That was the reason I was calling her and I was just telling her, please just do anything I say right now because anything may happen in a second. She said, I will do anything, but I will not destroy my guitar. It's the loveliest thing I have ever had in my life. I want to have it forever. That's like a gun for a fighter. And I was saying, I will buy you thousands of them. Just please destroy it and hide our cars. But she was insisting, okay, I will do it at the last moment. She didn't destroy it. But yeah, we had even worse thoughts before this, before Taliban completely took over. The night before leaving Afghanistan, we had a family gathering. We were trying to be happy, to be excited about my new journey that was like a dream for all of us. We were all thinking and talking about what will happen in future weeks. I just told my father please buy an oxygen for my sister. He asked, what do you mean? Why? She doesn't have any sickness. She is not infected with corona. I said, just imagine if there is a completeness and they are looking after female journalists and they can find our house so easily because everyone somehow knows us in Kabul. You should find somewhere safe. You should hide her under a bed or dig the ground or hide her there and put the oxygen to to survive. And suddenly the whole house, my uncle, my everyone else at the at the house were silent. It was not easy to think about it, but I was having this kind of dreams for days and days because I was leaving and I was feeling so bad that I'm leaving my family behind with all the chaos in Afghanistan and what if anything happened to them? I will not survive even if I'm in a safe place. I will be dead. How did your sister get into the guitar? You said she said it's her favorite possession. How did she take an interest in it? Did she get lessons? 
no father in Afghanistan wants her children to be singer in future because it's kind of a shame in Afghanistan to be a female singer or uh, artist. But we were raised with that interest and passion. So my sister was so much into music and she entered Kabul University. She did bachelor in art and her field was guitar. Her guitar was everything because she was harassed so many times on the streets because of her guitar. And that was like sign of resisting for her to show that even girls can learn music and love music. It's not something bad. You wrote in your piece that as the text messages were shaking your phone on Sunday saying that Kabul has fallen, you broke down crying like an abandoned child. You're all alone here. How scared are you right now? Even just remembering what I was going through on that night makes me feel broken. I was on the ground. No one was just here to hug me, to say anything to me. And I was thinking, what can I say to my family? How, how can I call them and talk to them? I, I didn't have any word. I was just feeling so bad and broken. And still, I feel so scared for everyone who is losing all the thing that they built in two last decades. I cried this morning as well. It's difficult to see my people in Afghanistan. All my friends are terrified. They deleted their social media accounts. They are hiding in houses. They don't go outside of their house. And they have no plan, no hope, nothing for their future, especially women. You write in the piece that Afghans in Kabul are drowning in a sea of chaos, fear, and betrayal. How are you interpreting this mix of emotions? People feel abandoned and betrayed right now. I have friends and I know so many people that have tickets, but their flights are canceled. It really hurts that even in your country, you're not the priority. Outside that, you're nothing. We'll be right back with more of this conversation after a short break. The Taliban is saying they're going to respect women's rights this time and that they're not going to exact revenge. And you say in the piece they're not to be trusted. Based on your perspective and this history that you have had to live, can you explain to a Western audience why people should not take the Taliban at face value? Taliban just hit journalists who were covering protests against them in Jalalabad yesterday. Taliban took some people away from their houses in Kabul. Taliban imposed their new rules in so many provinces. They separated men and women place like classroom or their workplace with a curtain and they warned, do not communicate with each others. Just yesterday, CNN broadcast a, a report that their reporters asking Taliban 
do you agree with the girls going to school? And he said, yeah, we are agree. We don't bother them, but they should obey Sharia law. And she asked, what's that? He said, yeah, they should wear hijab. And the journalist was in complete hijab. The journalist asked, uh, like me, the man said, no, not like you. It means to cover your face even. So how do you want us to believe in those claims? They want to show a moderated Taliban. It's not happening. Taliban didn't change. If there was a change, so why they were fighting all these years? They were fighting just for this kind of values that they believe in. You and your sister were also members of the Female National Cycling Federation. In your piece, you write that your sister used her bike to go to the bank the day the Taliban arrived in Kabul, and that now you can't imagine girls biking freely like that ever again. How did you get into cycling, and was that also a sign of resistance? You mentioned your sister carrying her her guitar around to show basically her independence. Is, was it the same thing with bicycles? Uh, yeah, exactly. I believe that symbols are important. They just speak out about so many things. We joined the team in 2016, and I was trying to make it something very usual. I wanted to be visible and make the exposure in the public. People were not used to see a girl on a bike, but we were trying to show them that it's possible, it's not something bad, and we can ride and we defend our rights because it's my choice to ride a bike. That kind of issues are very important for us and we fought with the traditional society for years, it was not just Taliban fighting with our soldiers in Afghanistan. We girls, we, the new generation, tried a lot to change the society, beliefs and mind, and make people respect other beliefs, accept each other's, and connect to the new world. That's such a good point. And I think it's, it wasn't just the Taliban that was resisting this modernization, it was also traditional society in Kabul. Of, did people jeer you or criticize you as you would bike around? It was like a coin with two sides. Sometimes they were criticizing, they were cursing. In the beginning, it was even worse. People threw stones on us. I was beaten on Kabul Street because I was riding a bike. I remember that security forces, polices were used to just shake a hand from far away and say, bravo, yeah, well done, you are the girl of this land. So it was not just cursing and criticizing. Some people were praising us for our bravery and for what we were trying to do. Obviously, this is a really dark time. There's a lot of darkness on the horizon, but do you have hope for the future of Afghanistan? Not right now. Maybe the day I traveled, I still had some hopes, but right now, I don't see any hope, nothing. Because I think the world left us behind. The international community won't interfere again, and they won't take some guarantees from Taliban. So fighters who killed our loved ones in explosions and blast and suicide attacks. Now they are offering us public immunity and uh, amnesty. So it's just terrible to 
offer amnesty to people who were victims. We were victims. What has been the response to your opinion piece in the post? I received so many good messages from all around the world, different countries. Like some students in University of Nebraska-Lincoln texted me. They found me on social media, texted me and sent their prayers. And it feels so good that I see people in the world care for Afghans. They can just ignore it, but they don't. So, uh, yeah, I received so many good messages and responses. They uh, wished for my country and people peace. So that, that means a lot for me. They can't do anything else. They, they can't save lives in Afghanistan, but at least they prayed for us. What are you planning to study at the University of Nebraska? It's a uh, Master of Integrated Media and Communication and Journalism and Communication at School. And so is your goal to go back to being a journalist? I was planning to establish my own center, a research and communication center in Kabul. And maybe I was planning to do some journalistic work beside that. But yeah, my plan was to do my business and empower women in communication field to make some uh, very strong PR strategies, communication strategies, help the government, help nonprofit organizations. But I don't know what I'm going to do after my graduation. I really have no prospect right now. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and and good luck uh, with this school year. Thank you so much. Tragically, Nasreen's sister and mom are just two of nearly 20 million Afghan women looking perilously into a future of Taliban rule. A senior Taliban commander said this week that Afghanistan will never again be a democracy and the country will revert to theocracy, ruled by a strict interpretation of Sharia law. Last time they were in charge, the Taliban banned the playing of music and even the possession of musical instruments as religious sacrilege. It's a far cry from just last week when Nasreen's sister would come into her bedroom most days to play a song or two for her on that prized guitar. Here's what that sounded like. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our engineer for this episode is Dara Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can listen and follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to read Nasreen's op-ed, you can find the link in our show notes. We're also including links this week to powerful op-eds by other Afghan voices. I'm James Homan. 
And I'll be back next Friday with another episode of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.